This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hey, for the wild community, it's Ayana here, and I'm speaking to you on the road to Alaska. Madison and I are headed north to do some on-the-ground advocacy work to support the protection of the land that encompasses the Tongass National Forest. So releasing this episode with Dune Lankhart is perfect timing to get our northern juices flowing. And we spent the last few days in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest for the reciprocity retreat, and it was so damn amazing. I mean, we climbed 200 feet into old growth dug fir canopies. We were schooled in fringe conservation theory by Courtney from Bark, and then She led us on this forest survey walk so we could learn how to defend our forest. And we also had the pleasure of a very heady mycological discussion with Peter McCoy. So it was quite a weekend, not to mention the food, the song circle led by Amy Ringel. I mean, I could go on, but wow, I'm just so grateful to the For the Wild team and Expedition Old Growth for making space for this magic to happen. So sign up for our newsletter on our website to find out about our next event. I'm already getting really excited. We're also looking for land partners for our One Million Redwoods project, and we're specifically at this time wanting to connect with people who tend land in the Redwoods region. So if you steward land that once had redwoods or still does, but you see space for more trees, please reach out to us at engage at forthewild.world. If you value this podcast, please become a member on Drip. We are about to release a new batch of bonus material and other goodies. You can sign up at d.rip slash four dash the dash wild every member makes a difference we couldn't do it without you all right now on to the show we don't have to destroy everything in order to survive there's different ways of thinking and doing and taking actions that prevent nonsense from continuing to happen in the world. But if it's truly about profit and greed in corporations, then we will all lose. But I don't feel that this is the way it ends. I feel this is the way it begins. The silence is broken by somebody crying, trying to be heard, never a word. Always the attitude, sort out your own, always alone, wishing for something the world is denying. Out in the wilderness, somebody's crying. Somebody wishing for something to happen, wishing to tell. Wishing to help Someone was listening Someone who cared Never despaired Someone to lean on And someone to trust Who needs your assistance And finds your disgust Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. Today we are speaking with Dune Lankard. Dune works to address the most pressing threats facing Alaska, from climate change, ocean acidification, to habitat destruction. Dune, a lifelong subsistence and commercial fisherman, Alaskan EAC native, and caring conservationist, became a community activist and advocate for wildlife species, wild salmon habitat, and native cultural preservation for 30 years, since March 24, 1989, when the Exxon Valdez oil tanker spewed more than 30 million gallons of oil 
into his homeland and onto the beaches of Prince William Sound. Dune helped found numerous nonprofits to take on the power that be the EAC Preservation Council, the Native Conservancy Land Trust, the Fire Fund Endowment, helped co found Red Oil, a statewide Native network, the Alaska Center, Prince William Soundkeeper, now the Community Cold Storage and Kitchen Project, and working with Alaskan conservation groups, scientists, artists, musicians, lawyers, visionaries, and fishing groups to keep Alaska wild. I just want to begin by extending a deep bow of gratitude to you for your ferocious dedication and perseverance to protect water, land, salmon, and the cultural lifeways of First Peoples of the Northwest Coast. We are just beyond honored to join you on the show today. Well, thank you. I'm here in the northern end of the coastal temperate rainforest. It's raining, blowing. It was hailing the other day. I'm part of the same coast of temperate rainforest as everybody in between me and Santa Cruz. Happy to be here representing the Sen today. Mm, oh, I feel you. I feel you in the wind and the hail and our northern temperate rainforest. I, I feel them. They call me every day. I'm so grateful knowing that you are there leading so many charges and... I want to begin by talking about a huge, devastating atrocity that happened years ago and believe is still on many people's mind that nearly 30 years have actually passed since over 30 million gallons of crude oil were spilled into Alaska's Prince William Sound, oiling over 3,000 miles of shoreline. And I've heard you call the Exxon Valdez spill, quote, the day the water died, end quote. And at that time, it was the largest oil spill in U.S. history, only to be surpassed by the 2010 Deepwater Horizon spill in the Gulf of Mexico. And these spills and the quickness with which people who are not viscerally impacted by them have forgotten them, it really speaks to the cannibalistic willingness of this civilization to inflict violence and sickness upon the fabric of life in the name of its addiction to oil. And oil development has not hindered since then or the Deepwater Horizon spill. In 2015, bans on exporting crude oil from the U.S. were lifted, and the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, one of the largest pipeline systems in the world, snaking from Prudhoe Bay in the Arctic to just north of Cordova in your home region, is now filling tankers headed to Asia. So I'm wondering, how has it been for you and your community to heal from Exxon Valdez while simultaneously having to resist compounding threats of more extraction and development? That's a really tough question to answer because the fabric of our community was eroded and we were disconnected. A lot of people they have an American dream or an Alaskan dream or a fishing dream, native dream. A lot of those threads and intrinsic relationships that we have with the land and the sea, and in our case, being a commercial fisherman and somebody who's lived from the sea for the last 50 plus years, it was absolutely devastating to our psyche, to our personal health mental, economic health. I mean, everything we believed in was shattered. And there was a, another side to the story where, you know, we thought that Exxon would come and clean up their mess. They said, we're Exxon, we do it right. They came up right away, said they'd make everything right with us, pay us all off, make our lives whole again. But they just put a big hole in our lives, in our hearts. And they never did clean up their mess. And they appealed the $5 billion verdict that we won in 1994 for punitive damages. They appealed that decision 17 times until they got the U.S. Supremes of their dreams. And then they immediately took the case to reduce the verdict size from $5 billion down to $500 million, which was the equivalent of one good day of fishing for 30,000 plaintiffs in the spill zone. 
The thing about that is about six to 7,000 original plaintiffs that filed in 1989 had already deceased by the time there was a settlement. So their families didn't get the money. Exxon just wanted to hold out as long as they possibly could. And fisheries still haven't fully recovered out of the 27 most heavily impacted species. Probably a, a dozen of those species are recovered. The herring, which used to be 50% of our annual income, we fished three seasons out of the last 29 years. So when you restore that herring, the sound will recover. The people will, will recover. And the thing about herring is they're like little torpedoes of energy that provide a meal source and high protein, high omegas for every species impacted in the spill. And so when those herring recover, we'll recover. I can only imagine the devastation and just to think that super tankers still navigate the deep waters of your territory every day. And I think it's important to make people aware of the realities of the oil spill response that you've begun to explain. But I'm wondering how exactly has Exxon addressed the irreparable long-term damages they wrought upon the ecosystems and the lifeways of Prince William Sound and the Copper River Delta? You know, as long as there's oil, industry and government will continue to pump oil into our veins and into our cars, idling energy. There will always be this rampant waste because of our philosophies and our perspectives and how we believe we should live in the world. So I think that profits over people and profits over society, some people are starting to wise up, but a lot of people are still in denial. They think that everything's going to be okay and things are going to work themselves out. That unfortunately doesn't happen very often, and it's a myth. The other thing is, is that communities need to empower themselves and find the courage to take on the powers that be, like we've had to here. And one of the things that we started is we helped form the RCAC, which is the Regional Citizens Advisory Council. And it's basically a, a watchdog of community activists throughout the spill zone that sits on these boards and the industry pays us to watchdog them. And what it does is allows for better tanker safety when they come through Valdez Narrows, better radar systems so they can actually find out and know exactly where Bly Reef is, which everyone should know because it's well marked. It gives you increased tug supervision. So you have these super tugs. Unfortunately, Crowley has stepped down and it's going to go to a new company that has a lot of problems with their vessels and, and research and monitoring. We're concerned about that. And then you have helicopter surveillance and better accountability from the various tankers that come in and leave Prince William Sound. So there has been a lot of improvements on that end. But that doesn't stop human error and tankers from losing power and possibility of another spill happening. I think we've been fortunate. There's been two or three incidents in storms where tankers have lost power and we're lucky enough that the wind changed or the weather changed and, and another spill didn't happen. So I think as long as we as humans feel that oil is infinite and that we will continue to allow industry and government to pump it into our veins, we'll have problems like this. But communities really have to organize themselves. And there should be regional citizens advisory councils everywhere industry goes on the land and the ocean. And the other thing is establishing restoration funds, which we'll go into in a bit. So the Exxon Valdez was a catalyst for you. And what incredible change-bringing work has transpired since. The initiatives that you've spearheaded have successfully stopped many an extractive development project. And with that, there is so much I'm called to ask you. But I'd like to invite you to storytell a bit about the precedent-setting legal actions that followed the 1989 spill. And as a voice for people too fearful to speak out, you sued your own EAC Corporation, seeking a right to vote on conservation over development, leading to over 700,000 
forested acres in the spill zone being spared of clear-cut logging. So I want to ask you, why was the outcome of this decision so groundbreaking for the conservation of native lands in Alaska and beyond? And I guess also, if you could let us know why so much land was slated to be logged so soon after the spill anyways. Well, my sister Pamela, who's a year and a half older, is one of my best friends and my spiritual guru. She called me and I was in Arizona. I had started a commercial fishery down there to remove these fish out of the lakes for the government. And what had happened was we just had a good day of fishing and got home and we're putting our tennis on to go and play some basketball. And we had this outdoor court. And so I kicked open the door while I was putting my shoes on and saw who was hot, you know, so I could go out there and get in some games with the boys. And and the phone rang and I just figured, you know, I just let it go because uh, I was putting my shoes on. I was getting ready to play hoops. And, and it was my sister, Pamela. And it was the old days when we had the recorders that you could hear a voice coming from this little black box. It was Pamela, and she said, Dune, we've just had the nation's worst oil spill in our backyard. And the CEO of the EAC Corporation, that's where she worked at my village corporation, she said the CEO, Steve Renberg, called everybody to the middle of the room and said, now that the eyes of the world is focused on the nation's worst oil spill, we need to clear cut as fast as we possibly can. And Pamela said, what are you talking about? Shouldn't we be more conservative and thinking like, how can this even be? Well, that's what happened, is the native corporations decided that in order to diversify the economy, because the fish had collapsed, a lot of people thought that all of our salmon from Alaska was oiled, and so the prices of salmon plummeted, the price of permits plummeted, the price of our vessels plummeted, fisheries were shut down. All of a sudden, you know, we could, we went from being able to make a quarter of a million a year in two or three different fisheries to we were lucky if we could make 50,000 in a year. Well, it's hard to pay off boats and permits and houses if that's the case. And so in order to diversify the economy, the native corporations in the spill zone, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act corporations decided that they were going to clear cut a million acres in the parallel path of the Exxon Valdez. And I sat down with Pamela and some of my friends and I said, I'll tell you what, if we clear cut the parallel path of the Exxon Valdez, we will no longer be fishing in 10 years or less. And this cannot happen on our watch. And so Pamela asked me, she says, well, can you live with the outcome no matter what happens, win or lose? And I said, well, I can tell you this, Pamela, we will absolutely lose if we do nothing at all. And we win by going in. We have to be louder than everything else, but we have to remain a, a voice of reason so people will reason with us. And so we need to take on our own people, our own native corporation. So I flew to back down to Arizona and I went to my mother and laid next to her in her bed and I said, Mama, I need your advice. The natives are starting to clear cut the forest and we just had the Exxon spill and Exxon's appealing all the claims. It could be years before we ever see a settlement, but we're not going to make it if, if we nuke the forest. I said, look at what's happened to California and Oregon and Washington and their wild fisheries, their wild salmon way of life. What happens to those tribes and those people and those cultures that are tied to these oceans and their resources? She said, well, I think it's your turn to give me advice for the next 30 years and you tell me what we should do. And I said, well, we need to sue our people and they'll like it. We'll create an economic alternative to get paid to leave our trees standing, therefore protecting our subsistence and commercial fishing way of life. And they're going to like it. They're going to get paid millions and millions of dollars in dividends for life to leave their trees standing because those trees have a right to life just like we do. And they happen to be the cathedral to our wild salmon. And so we need to do everything we can. And so Pamela and I and my mother and my auntie and a cousin, Faye, got the ravens and the eagles together, and we entered the courts, and we became a voice for the salmon and a, a voice for the, the delta and the sound, and, and we went all the way to the Alaska Supreme Court, and we won a decision that gave us a standing in the best interest of the public to have our voices heard in the courts. 
And all we were doing was trying to allow the shareholders to decide their own fate, give us the chance to vote on how our lands and our assets and our money would be managed. And prior to that, no native corporation allowed any shareholder in the state of Alaska to vote on how their corporation's assets were to be managed other than who got elected to the board of directors. And so we went all the way to the Supremes and basically said Alaska Supreme Court and demanded that we have a shareholder vote and that our case should be in the best interest of the public because the EAC Corporation at the time decided that because we were taking the, on their logging operations and their logging dreams, that we needed to post a $50 million bond and pay $500,000 in attorney fees to have our case heard. And we said, absolutely not. Everything that we are doing is in the best interest of the public. Are you kidding me? And so it went to the justices and, and Justice Rabinowitz wrote that these people have a right to have their case heard and they don't have to be forced to pay these crazy bonds and attorney fees to have their cases heard. So it went to a vote and 87% of the shareholders voted in favor of conservation. And we duplicated it 13 times in the spill zone and saved 765,000 acres of habitat. And the other 150,000 that was scheduled, it was actually a little more than that. They couldn't access it. So we ended up saving that too. And so here we are having to take on our relatives and our family and friends and but now they, they're getting dividends for life for protecting their forests. Wow, Dune. <laughs> Just incredible how much you and the others you were working with took on on so many complex levels. And I just want to thank you and, and just have a moment of gratitude for the immensity of what this must have taken to do. And yeah, you know what I would like to share with you about the five settlements from Exxon, just so you're clear on what happened, what Exxon did do. Originally, they paid a $286 million compensatory damage, which was for loss of immediate fishing income. When we won the $5 billion verdict in 1994, Exxon didn't want that precedent set, and that's why they appealed it 17 times because they didn't want to be in a situation where they created a precedent where industry actually had to pay for messes and cleanups of uh, spills of this magnitude, not only in Alaska, but around the world. And so when the justices decided to take that punitive damage case, they didn't do it to see that justice prevailed. They wanted to see that just us prevailed. And so it allowed the corporations and these developers to continue to have oil spills and do damage to different people's way of life without fair compensation. Exxon did spend $2 billion on the cleanup. It was basically a dog and pony show where they did bioremediation. They cleaned up the rocks with uh, cloth and rags. They used this dispersant to sink the oil so no one would see it anymore. It'd go into the water column. They used lasers to catch the water on fire to burn off some of the oil. They just did everything. We were a, a guinea pig, an experiment for them and the oil industry. Uh, then we were able to receive a billion dollar settlement for restoration in the spill zone. It was loaded with state and federal trustees, no native trustees. And the goal was to buy native land as cheap as you possibly could. And they decided what was in the best interest to, of public interest in restoration in the spill zone. And so we were able to lobby and get about 400, 450, maybe even 500 million, if you go all the way to today, of those funds to be used for acquisition so we can prevent further degradation to the environment. So it, we felt that the best restoration was to preserve what you already have and restore what's been destroyed. That was our goal. And then finally, the last hundred million that was supposed to be paid in the Exxon reopener, the reopener was set up so any signs from 1989 to the present that showed more restoration was needed in the spill zone, then Exxon would have to pay that last hundred million. We didn't have the trustees council, the state and federal trustees council, who had enough courage, backbone, and wisdom to stand up to the largest oil company in the world 
and forced them to pay what they owed. And so Exxon was able to uh, open bottles of champagne instead of paying that last hundred million for restoration. And it's really sad because all of the science that has been accomplished since 89 to the present show that not only has the area not recovered, but more restoration was in fact needed in the spill zone. And if you just look at our herring alone, if you only have a vibrant herring fishery that used to be 50% of our annual income, and you're only able to fish three out of the last 29 years, something's wrong in the neighborhood. And so money could have gone towards that. There's a lot of studies that show that oil and water don't mix. And we already know that. What they need to be doing is taking that 400 million in science that was paid for and put that damn science to work in the communities. Let the communities work that science because they're the ones who knows what's best and what can be restored and what can be recovered, what can be preserved. More empowerment needs to come from the people and more leadership needs to come from the people in the communities. And that it should be the way it is all around the world. go back to something that you had mentioned, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act of 1971. And it seems that this is one of the most twisted pieces of legislation that I'm familiar with. It forces cultures of reciprocity, such as the Gwich'in of caribou and the Eyak of salmon, into monetizing their more than human relatives and becoming shareholders of corporations. I heard that your family was very active during the land claims process, and I'm sure that the way Angska has unfolded has been unique within every Alaskan community. So would you be willing to explain some of the ways that Angska has been a vehicle for capitalist assimilation, and how has Angska affected cultural dynamics within the northern temperate rainforest? That's a really controversial question, but an important one in our time because it's happened in our lifetimes. When you think about how the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act of 71 even came about, it was because there was an Indian problem and we lived on our land. They didn't like that. So we also controlled our land. We had rights that were inalienable. So in order to deal with this Indian problem, federal government teamed up with the oil companies and they paid about $500 million for oil gas leases that would go towards the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act and the other $472 million would come from the federal government. And they realized that in order to have a better handle or to be able to control the Indians or their resources, that they didn't want to do what they did in America where they put the Indian people on reservations where it's land reserved for Indian people and give them Indian country status, but no actual rights to their land and their resources, because all of that is held in trust by the American government. In Alaska, they decided to force us into multinational corporations that we became shareholders instead of stakeholders. And our elder circle, our women's circle, the women grandmothers who made the decisions for our villages and our future were displaced by corporate Indians. They were displaced by people who didn't have that tie to the land uh, and the people and the culture. It was all about politics and money and jobs and 
how they could develop our resources and and put our shareholders to work. Well, we were already working out there in the field, you know, in subsistence and commercial fishing and hunting, gathering berries and living from the land, following the seasons of animals. And then all of a sudden we became shareholders. And the major difference between a stakeholder and a shareholder is a shareholder can sit back and just collect a check, where a stakeholder is somebody who actually goes out there and works the land, works the, the field. And, and so there was a, a, a major change in, in mentality and beliefs and, and relationships to the land and the sea. And the ANCSA corporations are set up so it's all about making money. If you don't make money, you go bankrupt and you lose your land and you give it back to the federal government. It was a brilliant form of legalized cultural and human genocide. What it is, it separated the people from their land. It was a way to alienate the people and isolate them and strip them of their land and put it into these corporations where the boards of directors made decisions on what assets were to be developed and how much was paid to the shareholders. And so trees started falling, mines started happening, oil started being drilled out of Prudhoe Bay. And they decided that they would build a pipeline from Prudhoe Bay all the way down to Prince William Sound, where it came right down to a 50-50 tie in the Senate and Sparrow Agnew had to step in and become the deciding vote. And Nixon said, there's not gonna be any problems up there, right boys? And of course there was. They said a spill wouldn't happen in 432 years and it happened in the 13th year of, of operation. Much like all of Alaska and its resources on native lands, they were all of a sudden for sale, sovereignty for sale. And, and it was one of the saddest things. And my mother, Rosie, she was our queen bee for seven little Indians. And she, I remember sitting at the end of the table, she would always have me sit with her when she was talking to these corporate Indians or these lawyers and all these people who are here to take our land. And grandma would be growling at these people and she'd always say, they're here to take our land, they're here to take our land and our rights. And I remember my mother telling me one time that the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act is going to happen. ANCSA is going to happen. There's nothing we can do. It's inevitable. So either we make the best of the situation or we lose. And so my mother uh, formed the Native Village of EAC. She was able to make sure that all five tribes were represented. You couldn't have brothers and sisters on the council. She was able to get a 150,000-acre land claim settlement three years after the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act passed in the law. She was relentless. She gathered 37 signatures of EACs who lived in town here, and we were able to receive a settlement, a little bit of cash to basically start this village corporation and then come up with a land plan. Well, there you go. That was the first thing the EAC Corporation failed in, is coming up with a land plan that was designed by the people who lived on the land. We've been at odds since 1971. Shortly after that, my father didn't want my mother to go into more Native politics, and so he forced her out, and she turned to me, and she said, you're the one. And I said, the one what? And she said, you're the one who's going to save our land and our people and our culture and our language and our wild salmon and our fishing way of life. And I said, Mama, I'm 10. And she said, I realize that, but you're the one. And I said, how can, what about Debbie, Linda, Don, Pam, Bruce, and Joe? And she said, no. You have the willpower and you're more stubborn than any of these other kids. And I know you'll never sell us out. And so her and grandma decided to teach me everything about Alaska Natural Interest Lands Conservation Act, ANILCA, limited entry, where our fishing permits became, and our fishing way of life became commodities and for trade and sale. They taught me about the seasons of animals, about the subsistence battles, about ANCSA, everything. I took a crash course in, in the future when I was 10, and I realized that even in order to save my EAC language, that I had to learn to write, understand, and read English really well in order to be able to preserve our language. And so my whole world changed at a very young age, and my mother, bless her heart, saw that I had an instinct for this. and. And so she took her time to make sure that I had the tools so when the day came, 
I would be able to take on the powers that be. And for her to have that insight on me at 10 was kind of riveting. And, you know, I tried to pass the buck immediately and and, uh, let other people do it. But she knew. And so when the spill happened, that was my calling. That was the day that the water died. And that was the day that something inside of me came to life and said, it's time to step up and and be louder than everything else, yet remain a voice of reason. Well, I have so much love for your mother and grandmother who had so much courage and so much foresight with you and to do what they did at that time, especially so many questions come to mind and the thoughts about how global capitalism has set a stage in which if we want to protect land, we have to prove that it's economically worthwhile to do so. And you've learned how to navigate from your mother the death throes of capitalism by turning conservation into economic opportunity for your people. I would really like if you could help us better understand some of the economic incentives for conservation that have been effective and what role do conservation easements and settlement trusts play in all of this? That's huge. That's very, very important that people grok this. They understand what we were able to do. Okay, we took the Exxon Valdez oil spill, one of the nation's worst oil spills at the time. And out of every catastrophe, whether it's man-made or just natural Mother Earth damages, you have to try and find a silver lining somewhere, somehow. And what it does is it helps keep you sane and grounded and hopeful. Because when those three pillars are lost, then you lose your balance and you lose your power because you then let other people think for you. So in this case, in order to find a silver lining out of the spill, we realized that we needed to establish some sort of a restoration fund, which was a dream to force the industry who destroyed our way of life to pay up and help us restore what we can. And everybody said it was impossible. Rick Steiner, David Grimes, Ricky Ott, Carol Hoover, myself, we decided that we would ask Exxon to give us $2 billion. We demanded that restoration happen in the spill zone immediately. And we came up with our own link to injury reports of you know how we could help restore this region. Of course, Exxon defied us. But what had happened, and here's the irony in how life works. There was a higher up in Exxon, Frank Iarossi, and he cared about us. He really wanted to, to try and make things right. I believe that. One day he called some of us activists and he said, you know, Wally Hickel, your governor, is back here trying to do an out-of-court settlement with Exxon back here in Texas. And he's trying to do an out-of-court settlement where he's going to leave the fishermen and the natives out of a settlement and just get a settlement for the state and federal government. And he goes, but I'm worried about you guys. I'm worried about the communities. And I just wanted to share that information with you. So we got cover stories in the New York Times and and the Washington Post talking about this out-of-court settlement. And Exxon, when the dust settled and they realized that they couldn't do this behind closed doors, and especially with Wally Hickel, our governor, leaving the fishermen and the natives out, we ended up getting a billion-dollar restoration fund. And so immediately we started lobbying the highest levels of government. And again, it was three state trustees and three federal trustees and no Indian trustees. And their goal was to buy our land and restore it. So one of the biggest mistakes that ever happened, and we should have filed lawsuits immediately, is to make sure that there was a native trustee, a liaison, who could work between the highest levels of government and the native peoples to make sure that justice prevailed and fair market value prevailed. And so the government, led by the conservation community, they wanted to see three things happen. They wanted to see fee simple title acquisition of native lands. They wanted to see conservation easements where you bought the development restrictions on the land, that there was some sort of conservation easements on what they couldn't buy up. For us, 
as Native people, I felt like we were shackled, like either do we be clear cut or do we be sold to the federal government and lose title to our land? And so it was a very, very tough time for me because I actually never voted in favor of conservation. And I knew that I couldn't sell what I didn't own. I inherited the land that my daughter Ananda will one day inherit. I inherited that from my mother and my grandmother. So how could I sell what wasn't mine? But I wanted to make sure that the habitat was protected. So it was a tough situation for me to be in. I felt like I needed to do the very best with the tools that was laid out in front of us. And so that's what we did. So immediately the scientists and government started spending hundreds of millions of dollars to show that oil and water didn't mix. Uh, all this science that really wasn't applied in the communities. They shot down real science. They spent 50 million on a publicity campaign to say that the oil spill was all cleaned up and everything was fine. They reimbursed Exxon $50 million for their cleanup, which was all a joke. It just started blowing all this money. And so we immediately knew that we had to figure out how to get some of this restoration funds to go towards habitat protection and acquisition of areas and in, in logging rights that were surely going to lead to clear cutting and the eventual loss of our fisheries too. And so ironically, we sat down with Governor Hickel, his uh, Attorney General, Charlie Cole, and we got about 20 minutes from them out at the Cordova airport. And I said, you know, we know you're Republicans. We know that you're trying to establish an agenda for yourself and, and create a legacy for yourself. Well, here's a way to do it. You support conservation in the spill zone and help us protect our land. We'll not only restore, but our fishers will be preserved and we will prevail ultimately because no one's coming. No one's coming to help us. It's us. We're the ones who are going to have to take on the powers that be and to help restore our land. We need the money and the help to do it. And so Wally, he came around. Him and Charlie Cole, I gave him uh, pictures of clear cuts in Prince William Sound. I said, this is going to happen to a million acres in the spill zone if you don't do something. And so Wally and his Republicans, they stepped up. They uh, started preserving habitat. And before they even knew how to stop us, we'd already saved 765,000 acres. And so miracles do happen and people have to create these restoration funds and they need to happen all over the world. Wherever industry is doing development and doing harm and running tankers, they have to have double hull tankers. They have to have super tugs. They have to have regional citizen advisory councils made up of community watchdog people to watchdog industry and government because you can't trust anybody. You need to do it yourself and find the courage and, and be bolder and louder than everything else, just like we have to do here. It's all about what quality of life do you want? You know, how do you want to live in the wild? How are you going to be able to find strength every day? And the only way that you're going to do that is if you if you go out and, and you take on those powers that be, you make those decisions for yourself and your people and your communities, and you build these restoration funds, you demand that government and industry pay these restoration funds, because it's the only way that we're going to restore what has been lost and preserve what we still have. And right now, the majority of of land that has fossil fuels under it just happens to have Native people standing on it. And so if we were to protect native rights around the world, we would protect some of the last wild green spaces we have on planet Earth. But it's going to take the people to believe in themselves and to believe in the planet. When it meets you, it takes all
I feel you. I feel this deep emotional passion that you carry for so many of us as a leader and the fact that this is how you're leading. You're leading with this deep love of land and deep love of people. And I think being able to allow ourselves to feel the immensity so that we can stand and fight and demand from the government. I think that's so important how you phrase these things that we cannot sit back while the last incredible cradles of wildlife and biodiversity are ripped from our hands. We have to demand that this be stopped, that there are restoration funds, that the community who is living on these lands, the native people, have a say, have power in the way things are being handled. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing this way of seeing and way of being in this time. This hard work. uh, It has been very rewarding. I've met some of the most amazing people on the planet, like yourself. I've been able to talk to the highest levels of government. I've been able to work with celebrities and musicians and artists and scientists on the good side. I've been able to find a silver lining in in one of the worst nightmares you could ever have. Unfortunately, it took one of the nation's worst oil spills to wake me up. And I hope that it doesn't take that for other people Mm -hmm. to see that we really should be planning a a funeral for uh, our planet if we decide to live in, in fear and denial because it's inevitable what is changing with the economy and the environment and climate change, ocean acidification, all of the changes in Alaska, it's all clear. There's, there's clear messages that things are not right. And so communities, if they want to be successful and build sustainable or regenerative economies and, and communities, then they need to do that for themselves. And they have to overcome these fears of politics and BS and progress and development is inevitable. That's all BS. What it comes down to is is how we develop things. And, you know, we should be looking at the last of the finite oil and figuring out how we're going to make products that that are going to last 100 years, not be burned and pumped into our atmosphere within seconds after starting our vehicles. We really need to change the way that we think and what we believe and what's important to us as human beings. Do we really want to leave a planet in chaos to our children in the future? I mean, come on. At least my mother and father did everything they could to pass on their knowledge and their wisdom and and their resources to me, so I would have a chance in the world. What choices and chances are we leaving the children in the future? We're not. We all have to look into the mirror every single day and decide, are we for life or not? Are we willing to step up and be heard and be louder than everything else and and work together? If, If we network with people, we support people who are actually doing the work, then it gets a little bit easier. The problems will keep adding up. You know, we still have a dozen major environmental campaigns that we've been fighting. Over the last 30 years, we've taken on 37 major environmental battles and won 35 of them. Been able to save over a million acres of habitat right now. We're working on a deal on the Barrier Nerva coal field on the eastern delta to preserve the last 11,000 acres of this coal field from ever being mined and spewed into the air, into the atmosphere. If we're able to preserve that, we'll preserve all 3 million acres of lower Copper River watershed for the rest of time. No roads, no development, no oil drilling, no gas drilling, no coal mining, no clear cutting, only wild salmon habitat. And because as long as you protect the home where those salmon come to, then you will always have a renewable economy. It's not rocket science. I'm not talking about things that are too far out of people's heads to understand or grasp. What I'm talking about is let's be sensible. Where's our spirit of of compromise in behalf of the environment that supports our way of life and provides for our way of life? We don't have to destroy everything in order to survive. There's different ways of thinking and doing and taking actions. 
that prevent nonsense from continuing to happen in the world. But if it's truly about profit and greed in corporations, then we will all lose. But I don't feel that this is the way it ends. I feel this is the way it begins. Yes. <laughs> yes, Dune. Oh, my goodness. I'm so with you. And I love how you just speak to the future, speak to the powers that be and are so courageous in that. And I think talking about how we get out of our fear and out of our denial to stand for a future that we actually believe in. It's so important to keep reminding us to look in the mirror. Every day we wake up, how do we choose to live our lives? We have choice. We have autonomy of how to move forward and to work together and to build coalition. This is, oh my goodness, it's just music to my ears. And I want to talk about also some of the silver linings that you've mentioned that you have fought and you've won. And one of the recent victories in your realm was within the Bering River watershed, whose surface lands and waters are now conserved as part of the carbon offset trade as of 2017 with the Native Conservancy Land Trust now holding an easement to a 62,000-acre Chuga Alaska Corporation coal title. So to be honest, I've held... Chugash, thank you. And to be honest, I've held some skepticism and hesitancy towards the cap-and-trade system. And as I understand, to allow corporations to continue polluting as long as they would pay for it. But it also invokes a different feeling to hear the stories of people whose land have been preserved through carbon credits. Here in California, the Yurok have acquired around 40,000 acres of their traditional territory this way. From your experience, what is your opinion on the benefits and the downsides of carbon offsets and credits? That is a controversial form of conservation, absolutely. But like every situation, not only do you have to look for that silver lining, You have to figure out how to do the most good while doing the least harm, no matter what. If you can do that, then the chances of restoration or preservation prevailing is much greater. Whether it's with a tribe or the land or the salmon or the air, whatever, you have to figure out how to cut your losses. This situation presented itself. It was actually California who had set up these carbon trading banking system. And and I knew that one day it was going to come to Alaska. I just didn't know how or when. But I knew that when it did, I wanted to be one of the first in line because it was a way that we could leave fossil fuels in the ground. It was a way that we could get paid to leave our trees standing. There would be ways to preserve our subsistence and commercial fishing way of life that Currently, you don't have enough money to do in this lifetime. But if it's factored over many lifetimes, then the chances become much greater for success. In this case, what we had spoken with New Forest Inc., based out of California, doing the studying on the the various carbon trades, we realized that most Native people and most sensible people didn't support this vision because, like you said, it does and could lead to more pollution elsewhere. But at the time, California was trying to, to figure out how they were going to continue this program. And also, there was a certain amount of, of carbon that was going to be released no matter what. And there was a finite number of dollars available for creative conservation ideas. And so Chugash, Alaska Corporation, my regional native corporation, lobbied to get Alaska included in this carbon trading. And so I went down to California. I studied it as much as I could. We had a carbon conference. I invited a lot of native peoples and a lot of interested parties. We had this incredible conversation. And and I realized that it was a way that in some places you could curb the number of offsets at the same time you could protect current carbon offsets like living trees that filter the air and protect habitat 
in a creative way that currently didn't exist. And so we started working with the Nature Conservancy, the Chugash Corporation, New Forest Inc. And we'd already formed the Native Conservancy Land Trust, which is a sister organization to the EAC Preservation Council that we started here in Cordova. We'd formed the Native Conservancy to actually be a holder of uh, conservation easements in the event that we could ever find a way to preserve the Barrier River coal field. And so after several years of negotiations, we were able to preserve 62,000 acres of coal and 115,000 acres of surface tree rights. That was not only trees from Prince William Sound, but about 10,000 acres of old growth trees in the Copper River Delta, Eastern Copper River Delta, Catella region, near the Barrier River coal field. And so we, we felt that two precedent things happened. One, we were able to use a net operating loss sale to be able to preserve the subsurface coal rights and a visionary 115,000 acre carbon offset to protect all of the trees that could have been clear cut in more in the spill zone. And since the area is still recovering from the Exxon Valley's oil spill, we felt that preservation of the remaining habitat was critical and important to our existence as not only a native people, but as a fishing culture that is intrinsically tied to the land and the sea. And so we did have to make a compromise for Mother Earth. We had to look at the, the losses and uh, figure out, okay, how could we do this and what exactly are, we're gonna, are we gonna be able to accomplish by doing this? And so after the deal was done, a lot of environmental groups, a lot of native groups have come to me and said, how did this work for you? Why did you do it? How did you do it? What does this mean? What it means is that we could save literally tens of millions of acres of land where we couldn't do that before. And it's like a restoration fund. If you can figure out how to get government and industry to pay for restoration and preservation of habitat in the areas that they are developing it, what you try to do is, is see that it's developed as responsibly as possible. And at the same time, you're the watchdog. You know what you can live with and what you can't live with. At the same time, you have to also make sure that you're helping other communities preserve their habitats as well, because it's, it's not just about me protecting the North and saving 5.5% of Alaska's entire land base and our eight nonprofits doing all that amazing work like we've been talking about here for this last hour, but it's about us networking and working with these other communities to duplicate what we've done and the successes that we've had so other trees, other fossil fuels are protected and left in the ground. This doesn't end here on our end of the coastal temperate rainforest. This is a, an incredible networking opportunity where we can duplicate this in these efforts around the world. This was medicine to me, Dune. I needed this. I needed to hear these things so much right now. And I am so with you with focusing and organizing and supporting each other. It's been the bird song that has been singing through my ears while doing this conservation work down here in the lower Pacific temperate rainforest region. So this is just it's fuel to my fire. Thank you. Yeah. And thanks for being so amazing. You know, like everyone, we need to brace ourselves for the future because it's here and it's going to take us to make the difference in the world. So big hugs and um, we'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was the final Mexican summer music feature by Ton Starts Bandit. I'd like to thank our incredible podcast team, our editor and producer, Andrew Storrs, research director, Madison Mogolski, 
media director Molly Lebove and research assistant Francesca Glassbell.